Hey everyone, this is a big week for the podcast. This iteration of the show is counting down to our 100th episode. We've been publishing every Monday to Friday since February 11th. It's been a lot of work, and we've had a lot of fun. So now it's time to take a break and look back on five of our best episodes since we started. Every day this week, we will run a rerun of one of our most well-received episodes. This also means if you're new here, it's a great time to jump in and see what you missed. Today is our 96th episode, which makes Friday our 100th. So these final five will push us to 100, and from there, we'll continue to do exactly what you've been enjoying for the past four months. Today we'll kick it off with a piece of dark but fascinating history from the island. We'll tell you the story of Brother Twelve. And if you listened to the first time we ran this one, you'll notice a treat at the end. A local artist from the Nanaimo area named John Gogo has given us permission to play his folk song about the Brother Twelve cult. That will air at the end of the episode today. My name is Jackie Lamport. Today is Tuesday, May 18th. Welcome to the Capital Daily Podcast. Today on the show. He actually gets charged and put on trial. The reports of the trial were shocking. People apparently were in a kind of hypnotic state, so when witnesses attempted to testify against him, they would bark like dogs. De Courcy Island, just off Nanaimo, is up for sale. The same property that used to be the home of one of Canada's most notorious cults. Today's episode features alleged murders, black magic, and hidden treasure, as we tell the story of Brother Twelve. This episode of the Capital Daily Podcast is sponsored by the Victoria Foundation's Vital Signs Survey. Take the survey until July 1st at victoriafoundation.ca. One of British Columbia's, and in fact all of Canada's, most notorious cults existed in the early 1900s just off of Vancouver Island. The cult called a small Gulf island near Nanaimo home from its inception in 1926 until its dramatic end in 1932. Today, we tell the story of Brother Twelve. To do so, we're joined by Justine Brown author of All Possible Worlds, Utopia Experiments in British Columbia. Edward Arthur Wilson, who will soon be known as Brother Twelve, was born in England in 1878. Wilson traveled the world as a naval captain, and then eventually temporarily settled in British Columbia in 1912. As Justine explained to me, Wilson's early life seems to have foreshadowed his future. He grew up in a Christian family who had a kind of, they were a little bit off the beaten path. And it's kind of relevant because of what he did later. They followed a kind of charismatic Scottish preacher who was an apocalyptic kind of millenarian type preacher. And so he told his followers that the um, second coming, the end of the world would happen within their lifetime. This is also something that Brother Twelve incorporated into his sort of shtick later on. That's something that's not often mentioned. He did report having angelic visitors from us from the age of, you know, six or so. And he later said that he believed that they were angels for a long time. Then he later decided that they were these kind of spiritual masters, entities that 
he believed were members of a 12 masters of what his um, inspiration, Madame Blavatsky, called the Great White Lodge. Wilson eventually abandoned his wife and his two sons to travel the world and study mysticism and occults from around the world. In 1924, Wilson settled in France. This is when he claims to have had a vision where he was visited by the 11 brothers in the ethereal White Lodge. He had a vision in the south of France. He claimed that he saw in the night he saw an Ankara, the sort of one of those Egyptian symbols floating in the air before him. And at that stage, he, he decided to kind of form his own group. And his idea was that his group should go and retreat to what was definitely thought of as the ends of the earth, British Columbia, and go to this island, which would then become the sort of center of the world for the enlightened as they waited for the apocalypse and the end of the world. And so you see that him picking up that theme from childhood there. And so I, I do think that's quite, you know, his, his early thinking was probably formed by that, that apocalyptic theme. Wilson then drops his given name and starts referring to himself as Brother Twelve. As the claimed 12th brother of the Great White Brotherhood occult, he begins writing down lessons and teachings he says are being transmitted to him. So there's this concept that there were these spiritual masters, and they, there were 12 of them. Because he was a um, follower of the 12th master, he called himself Brother 12. What we know about him is that he became a naval captain, and he traveled the world. He went around to a lot of places. And while he was traveling, he educated himself as a kind of magus, a kind of magician, both in the sense of learning hypnotism and trickery and stage magic, and also in the sense, a kind of traditional sense of a Renaissance magus, that he studied esoteric religion. He studied arcane and mysterious traditions. At the time, as I mentioned, there's this lady, Madame Blavatsky, who was a, a Russian-German mystic who became extremely famous and popular at the end of the 19th century. And she founded a religion called Theosophy, which means study uh, divine wisdom. So Theosophy from the Greek, divine wisdom. This term goes back to the Renaissance, but that's what she called her religion. So it was kind of a um, combination religion in that uh, syncretic religion. So the idea was that they would, they blended all the great world's great religions and came up with a formulation that they saw as this kind of modern um, answer. And this laid the groundwork for the modern new age movement. So the, what we know is the new age movement of the, you know, that's in more kind of in the last 30 years or so, actually goes back to the 19th century. Prior to founding the religion, she was a spiritist. So one of these people into seances, but she later kind of renounced that and then went on to found this other religion. So Brother Twelve saw himself as carrying on her tradition. He was maybe one generation later than her. And so in the 1920s, he was promoting her vision of the world, and he collected a group of followers around him. He starts publishing articles and gaining an audience in theosophical and occult circles around Europe. In 1926, he arrived back in England and discovered his following was growing. 
That year, he began plans on the Aquarian Foundation, the colony in British Columbia for him and his disciples. He returns to Canada, but first travels around building support and gaining followers. And as a charismatic man, that did not come with much difficulty. He came to British Columbia in the 1920s, but prior to that, uh, earlier in the 20s, he was in the States. I know he, he was in Toronto as well, fundraising, and he was just a very charismatic person. And there always is a charismatic person at the center of these cults. I mean, I've talked about Brother Twelve's colony of truth in the context of utopian communities more broadly in, in British Columbia and other places. There are different kinds of utopian communities. And they're usually, you know, a utopian community is defined by a kind of idealism, probably a degree of isolation, and usually some kind of communalism, which may be the idealism that animates the community. It's usually, we could say it's like kind of artificial in the sense that it's very created intentionally. And that's why modern day utopians prefer the term intentional community. Very often, these communities are, you know, they need something glue to hold them together. And if they don't have anything more than a single charismatic person, they usually fail. But while they have that one person at the center of the community, they stay together. But unfortunately, that person usually has some kind of grandiose tendencies that leads him and sometimes her to like usually sexually molest the other members or 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 generally uh, or become violent or steal everything from them or something like that. So the person usually has some kind of psychopathic tendencies. And that was the case of Brother Twelve. In 1927, he purchased property on the DeCourcy Islands for the colony of the Aquarian Foundation. What I understand is that there's a kind of hierarchy of islands. There was one that was kind of for the new initiates, one for the next stage, one for the initiated, and one was served as a prison. There was a story about a man who had been imprisoned there and had escaped and then got to the island and reported it to the police who investigated, but I don't think they took any further action at that time. The islands themselves only had a couple hundred people at the peak, but Brother Twelve was gaining a large following that translated to donors internationally, specifically in California. He was very good at getting people's money as well. It's always hard to establish when you study these kind of figures, like to what degree are they consciously criminals who are just scamming people, or to what degree do they believe their story, or do they hear voices, or are they being visited? But, you know, sometimes I think it might be a combination. It's certainly easy to be suspicious about somebody who tells people that one of the ways that they have to prove themselves is to give him all their money, to basically sacrifice huge amounts of money. He was very good at fundraising. And then he, you know, started fundraising heavy, heavily with his network of very influential people. You know, among his his followers, there were um, wealthy industrialists. There were f- silent film actors. There were sort of society people, Mayflower kind of society types. You know, people who are descended from the from the original Mayflower ship that arrived in in America, you know, very kind of wealthy and ambitious people. People like this are often attracted to this type of religion because they seem, they they feel like 
they're getting in on something secret that other people don't have access to, right? So it's not just any old religion. It's not just, it's not just say, Christianity that everybody knows about, but it's the special thing that you only you have access to. So it's this esoteric mystery, and it kind of confirms your elite uh, status to be involved in this kind of secret system. I mean, that's, I, you know, I don't know a lot about the Masons, but I think that the Masons have a similar kind of appeal um, in that they have secret knowledge, esoteric knowledge that they impart to people as as they progress through the ranks. And then of course they, they're very networked as well. So he collected this group of wealthy and influential people. I think there was a novelist in there, a lot of people with loot. At its height, Brother 12 claimed to have had around 8,000 members. In 1927, Brother 12 had his first known mistress. He convinced her that he and her would bear a son that would be the reincarnation of an Egyptian god. This does not happen, and the end of that relationship is still shrouded in mystery. By that time, he didn't have his wife and children. He had a mistress, a young lady, and unfortunately for this young lady, he developed this idea that he had to have a kind of princeling, uh, which he, he imagined as a sort of Christ child, right? So she was going to be carrying his his divine offspring, and what she had was a series of miscarriages. And after that, apparently she, she had a kind of breakdown and she was disposed of, not she didn't die. Although actually there were rumors that she did die. There was a, a skull discovered that was later identified as the skull of a 25-year-old woman. So I believe the lady who had the miscarriages was named Myrtle Baumgarten. I don't know for sure that that was her skull, but it's possible. We'll pause here for a word from our sponsor. This episode of the Capital Daily Podcast is sponsored by the Victoria Foundation's Vital Signs Survey. Take the survey until July 1st at victoriafoundation.ca. This month, the Victoria Foundation is encouraging residents from throughout Greater Victoria to take the 2021 Victoria's Vital Signs Survey. This short online survey gives everyone the opportunity to help identify what's working in our region and what needs improvement. Respondents will also have the chance to win some great prizes. Take this survey until July 1st at victoriafoundation.ca. Brother 12 had earned a large following in America, and he wanted to extend that reach. He began publishing a magazine called The Chalice, which was an attempt to influence American politics. He also attempted to gain control of the White House. In the 1928 election, he threw his support behind a third-party candidate that he believed could defeat Hoover. He was connected with a political campaign in the U.S. He was supporting a candidate that he preferred to Herbert Hoover. And he was saying that if Hoover got in, that would be the end of freedom and the beginning of a terrible age in the U.S. Uh, but I think that, I mean, Hoover won and that candidate disappeared. I asked Justine what the colony would have been like for someone who lived there. It's interesting because I, myself, as a child, lived on a commune near this place. And it kind of um, sounded really familiar to me because we spent time on this commune on Cooper Island, which is, again, very close to Chimanus, and that's where we used to go for our, our groceries. And on that island, 
it wasn't as dramatic, but there were some similar, um, definitely some similar themes that developed. And when I looked at the pictures of the followers, and there's some very beautiful pictures, which I, I wish we could show people. First of all, people had to work hard. So they had to build the structures. So they didn't have, as far as I know, they didn't have any kind of skilled workers with them. So you had all these kind of people who were not used to hard work building cabins and things. And of course, like I'm sure that as many people who come to British Columbia for the first time, they probably had a, like arrived in summertime, uh, thought they had, you know, were in paradise. It was sunny. Everything was going great. And then around like the end of uh, September, the rains came and then they were sort of drowned. Right. And so they definitely probably felt that life was kind of easy when they could live in tents. But I think life got a bit harder when winter came. And they weren't really prepared for that. So they had to do a lot of hard work. They had to garden. They can't have had full um, self-sufficiency. So, you know, I know for a fact that they got supplies in Chimanus, uh, like we did two generations later. Then there was, there was a great deal of ritual. And uh, that's what they were there for. You know, they were interested in, in being part of this intense religious kind of experience, mystical experience. And so Brother 12 would have put a lot of energy into creating a powerful experience for them. So I think life was probably exciting at first, and they would have felt, because they strongly believed that they were, they were the elect, they'd been chosen to be at the center of this incredible millenarian experience where the end of the world would come and they would be kind of highly placed to usher in the next stage of things. They would have been kind of thrilled, right? And it probably took a lot of energy to keep the excitement high. During this time, a woman who began as a follower becomes his newest mistress, and she begins to take on a role of leadership herself. This is Madame Z. Her real name was Mabel Scotto. That was her married name. She was married, I think, when she came to the island, and she had an affair with Brother 12, as many women did. Supposedly, he, had, he was incredibly compelling and you know, magnetic. Again, that's kind of a typical scenario with these types of charismatic groups. There have been a couple of examples recently. Um, an Axiom cult comes to mind. Keith Raniere, and not you know to look at the fellow, you don't sort of he doesn't seem like a, a you know, like a dream date, but he apparently had a lot of personal char charisma, and he got all these women involved in getting branded and uh, you know giving him lots of lots of sex at all times, and this is the sort of thing that was going on with Brother Twelve as well. To be honest, like I don't think there's a lot of information about Madame Z. It's more the the person that she became. There's a lot of contrast between the kind of names like Mabel and Gertrude and things like this, which, it, well, they sound like old-fashioned names to us anyway, right? But then they, they choose these new names for themselves, and, and they, they sound very imposing and, and grand. And like most of the characters in this story have chosen new and imposing names for themselves to sound otherworldly. She apparently, I mean, it's, the stories are very weird. Like they, you know, she would dress up in what sounds like kind of dominatrix attire and go around whipping people as they were trying to go, you know, gardening. So it was a sort of slave situation. The cult height would not last long. 
Some members soon began to develop distrust toward him over his handling of donations. A lot of people started getting suspicious about their money being stolen. Apparently, Brother 12 and Madame Z started hiding gold in mason jars and moving the gold from island to island in an effort to defeat people. So they actually had him charged with stealing their money, with embezzlement, I guess, would was probably the formal charge. One can only imagine, you know, what was going on on the island as they were all trying to live there um, and join together really by the being convinced or perhaps not as convinced by this charismatic figure. And then you have this mutiny. He actually gets charged and put on trial. The reports of the trial were shocking. People apparently were in a kind of hypnotic state. So when witnesses attempted to testify against him, they would just kind of bark like dogs and this kind of thing. And it was reported in the paper. Wow. So this is this actually happened. <laughs> yeah, this actually happened. And as a result, they couldn't uh, convict him because the witnesses fell apart on the stand since they were hypnotized and frightened of this man. Obviously, you know, he already had a lot of power over them. And he did seem to have, you know, some people do, well, you know, there are debates about what, about hypnosis and what it really is. and But it does seem that some people are more vulnerable to hypnosis. And it's possible that he was able to hypnotize them. He certainly would glare at them, stare at them while they were talking and they kind of lost it. I just want to go in on that a little bit further, too, because at this point, I mean, that kind of activity is shocking even modern day but at yeah. the time it was kind of people were calling it black magic and mm -hmm. he was getting this name as somebody who could practice black magic yeah yeah right and that's frightening to people yeah and it's frightening to anybody really um and and so i mean i think there's something in it, it's not didn't come out of nowhere because he did study magic in both senses as as i mentioned you know in this kind in the sense of learning the various tricks and illusions that that magicians use and also in the sense of having this familiarity with ancient esoteric traditions which gave him a lot of authority you know i've read passages of his of his writings which you know he definitely was articulate i mean he was in command of a a number of traditions, but it's possible, you know, it's, it's, people can be quite intimidated. There are probably, in a sense, like what we could say that there are words that people can say that have a spell like effect on people, you know, without kind of buying into magic per se, into, you know, black magic per se. I think you can definitely have an effect on people. Like if you tell somebody, for example, like, I put a curse on you, or somebody, got a voodoo doll of you and you stuck pins in it. Even if you are somebody who rejects that type of uh, magic, you don't believe that it's true, it's still going to be frightening to you and you still might, it still might play into your mind to the degree that you do start having bad luck, right? So that would just be an example of how black magic might actually work on people. The colony had a bad reputation um, with the locals, unsurprisingly, and there were stories about orgies on the beach and black magic happening because there were definitely ceremonies happening. And so, you know, not only were the some a lot of the people in the colony getting impatient and angry with Brother Twelve, but also 
there was a lot of resistance from people around. There's a very interesting novel by Vancouver Island writer Jack Hodgins called The Invention of the World, in which Brother 12 is definitely one of the sources for that. Another source is Mati Kurika, who was the leader of the Sointula Finnish utopian colony on Malcolm Island. And so he kind of created a, you know, a synthesis of these two figures. Mati Kurika is a very different sort of man, but, but uh, still, you know, there are some resemblances. And in the book, he says, you know, when he was a child, I'll just quote, Daddy used to tell me there was a black magician on one of the islands around here practicing evil rites. He says, you know, growing up on Vancouver Island, there was this talk. So it was, again, it's like this kind of folk tale that's passed on because people experience this hearing about it firsthand or your, you know, your grandmother heard about this, um, this man and this, this woman. Also, you know, the next part like of the story is because it, it called them all ended very mysteriously. People, there's still lots of question marks over it. Before we move on from the black magic piece, I just want to clarify. I've heard that they also tried to murder their enemies, including like politicians and such through black magic. Obviously, this didn't happen, but they attempted to. So they must have believed it on some level. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah, going back to the idea of how much people believe, like I, I do think that that Brother Twelve believed in most of this stuff. The two don't, you know, it's not mutually exclusive to be power hungry and also to believe in 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 black magic. Soon after things started to get messy, Brother Twelve and Madame Z take off and disappear. This is the end of the colony. He takes the money and runs off with it. But before he does that, I think by this stage, some people were starting to leave. And also he was a bit furious about the, uh, the trial. So he starts to take revenge by blowing stuff up and burning stuff down. So he and Madame Z began just destroying the compound and going around collecting the jars. And he had a boat and he escaped on it. They were trying to find him. I mean, the p thing is that when you mess with, you know, you, you, on the one hand, like if you collect a bunch of well-placed, wealthy and well-connected people, on the one hand, they can bring in money and they can be influential and they can bring in other people. But the other side to that is if you get them angry, they actually have, you know, resources to try to track you down. So they did try. They tried looking for him. And they sent investigators after him because he, you know, ran off with a great deal of money. I mean, the sort of donations in the time, you know, they were in the tens of thousands, which is a lot of money in the 20s from each person. So he, had, you know, would have had probably hundreds of thousands when he left and, and supposedly in gold. They sailed off and were never heard from again, but he was supposed to have made it to Switzerland. There was a report of his death in Switzerland and even death certificate. But there were also rumors, quite um, well kind of uh, evidence rumors, that he had faked his own death and that, in fact, he was seen on a number of occasions after that. You know, it doesn't surprise me that he would try to fake his own death if he thought people were after him. There was a... a an investigator who started tracking 
all the former followers. There, and he found one of the most, the biggest donors, a lady called Mary Connolly, living in New Zealand. John Oliphant, you know, he has a site where there are some pictures, including the, the, a picture of this lady when she was, I think, in her 80s by that time, but she'd been tracked down. This investigator went around interviewing people, and he also, I think he found someone who he believed was, was the son of Brother Twelve. Since then, people have gone to these islands seeking buried treasure because they, they heard that there might still be gold buried around there. There's been more than one expedition and I think there have been many expeditions and efforts to uncover it. There was one, a fellow was convinced that the money was buried in a specific place, and he sort of picked up a wooden hatch. They didn't find any money, but they did find a, a, a note scrawled there saying, like, fools and uh, traitors get nothing. Wow. <laughs> so <laughs> so he, he was, like, he was... He was moving the money around before he left mm -hmm. um, because he thought that the followers were not, you know, trustworthy. And also they, they started to get um, furious about their money. So he probably was moving it around. And that note could have been from when they were still there, you know, and he was just playing mind games with the people who, who were mm -hmm. still on the still on the island. Since uh, since he left, though, there has been no treasure that's actually been found, right? That's right. Yeah, no, it hasn't been. So people, you know, you can still still have a chance. You can... <laughs> if you want to buy the property and go uh, start an excavation, that's possible now. <laughs> that's right. So since, you know, there have been, um, I mean, I would say like echoes of Brother 12 keep happening. And there, there was a, an, an interesting, there have been a low, actually masses of communes and cults uh, in British Columbia, which... I think, you know, there are a few factors, a few reasons why British Columbia has attracted so many uh, such projects. I think there's a sense of Brit British Columbia as this, just from the perspective of Europeans, as, as a kind of, you know, I mentioned before the phrase ends of the earth, right? Because it was actually the last part of the temperate world to be mapped. The old maps that show the kind of gradual charting of the Americas, British Columbia is always the last part, right? Because it took that it took that long to make it there, and it's you know it was that far away from from Europe. So even up until in the nineteenth century, British Columbia wasn't fully properly mapped. So there are all these really interesting images showing like terra incognita, right? Unknown land up here, or sort of sea monsters be here, kind of thing. And in Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels, he places the land of the giants Brobdignag in British Columbia because nobody knew what was there. Sir Francis Drake, the Elizabethan explorer, he explored up the coast and he may have gone into British Columbia. We know for sure he went as far as Northern California. And, but again, it was this kind of mystery because they were seeking the Northwest Passage. Because of this sense of like an unexplored, mysterious territory where anything could happen, really. Anything could be there. Also, there was lots of land, you know, things were, land was then relatively cheap or very cheap. Um, and 
you felt like you could do what you wanted. You know, you could create a new story. California and, and you know, that Northwest and the same thing happened there. Like it was the last kind of frontier and then the frontier moved up and the frontier moved up. But British Columbia was even after that. So like you find with a lot of um, Americans that they feel like if they're looking for a place that is un that is kind of open, there's still a possibility to do experimental things and they often will go to British Columbia. And that's where we see a lot of these kinds of projects in, in the late 19th century and in the 20s, they ease off for a while during World War II and the 50s, and then they start up again in the 60s and 70s, especially in and around Vancouver Island because of the relatively temperate weather and so on. That's, I think, why people are attracted to British Columbia for these kinds of projects. I assume they still are, you know. Even though in recent years, BC has become a little more well-known. I no longer live in British Columbia. I, I was born and raised uh, in Vancouver and around Vancouver. And um, nowadays, whereas when I was a kid, people didn't really know, you know, if you said you're from, you know, Vancouver or something, people didn't really know much about it. But now they're all kind of like, oh, yeah, I heard that's great. And, you know, mm -hmm. um, I'd love to go there. And, you know, people have a kind of clearer sense of where. So it's not quite the nowhere land that it used to be, but... It creates a very rich and unique history for the area. There's so many. Mm -hmm. This is just one story of many that are just, like, incredibly fascinating to dive into, so... Yeah. Justine, thank you so much for your, all your expertise on this today. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for inviting me. Canadian media owner David Black bought the property in 2017. Apparently... The property hasn't been altered in any way since. It is now for sale listed at $2.8 million. Do you want to help support Capital Daily's local journalism and connect your business with our engaged and curious Greater Victoria audience of over 50,000? Email our partnerships team at advertising at capitaldaily.ca. Thanks so much for spending some time with us today. If you enjoyed the podcast, please share with your friends, rate, review, and subscribe so that you don't miss anything going forward. We post new shows every Monday to Friday. My name is Jackie Lamport. This is the Capital Daily Podcast. We'll talk to you tomorrow. And as promised, here's a song about Brother 12 by John Gogo. There was a mystical cult on North Valdez that's what Jerry Hill at Yellow Point says. Followed by an eerie silence. They reappeared on Corsi Island. It was Brother Twelve with disciples many. Some were rich till they gave him every penny. According to what I've been told He converted it all to coins of gold With something funny going on And I don't mean hilarious What the hell's a knock of refuge For the age of Aquarius 
his brother twelve of the great white lodge we should have ordered him the hell out of dodge into his mystic world we delve to find the truth about brother twelve Of course he is the infamous devil of the course I heard he had a New Zealand wife He left her in the kids for another life They say he had a vision in the south of France. I say he was flying by the seat of his pants But he could hypnotize and use black magic Some lost everything and that's what's tragic When the game was up he became so violent Then in court He made every witness silent Into his mystic world we delve To find the truth about Brother Twelve Just to realize, of course, he Is the infamous devil of the Corsi Disappeared. All the gold did too, as everybody feared. In Switzerland, they say he passed away. Then he was seen on a ship in San Francisco Bay. Oh, brother, twelve, he's sly, he's Protection Island, there's a brother 13. Into his mystic world we delve to find the truth about brother 12. Just to realize, of course, he the infamous devil of the course. The infamous devil of the Corsi The infamous devil of the Corsi